Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. This is the biggest crowd we've ever had here at the bookstore, and I'm not surprised because our author, it's their fifth visit to the Radio Book Club, and uh, who have we been reading for the month of August? We've been reading Colorado's own Peter Heller with his novel, The Last Ranger. Peter, your last books have been very much set in Colorado. This time, you're taking us to an iconic part of the American West, Yellowstone. Why Yellowstone? I didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> you guys know, uh, if you've ever heard me talk, I, I always start with the first line. I never plot, I never really have an idea. Uh, I sort of, I came up writing poetry, and I'm not that great a poet, but uh, I really loved it, and I really uh, am more concerned with the music of the language and the sound of it than any kind of story or plot or even, even where it takes place. So when I uh, sit down to write that way, I start with the first line that's sort of whose cadence I love and the music of the language that I love and follow it into the next to the next, and then I sort of bump into whatever's on my heart and whatever concerns me. And the last few years, uh, even uh, during COVID, I've gone up to Yellowstone to the Lamar Valley, which has uh, been called the American Serengeti. And it's a place that uh, hosts, um, is habitat for um, herds of elk, of deer, uh, uh, has um, many grizzly bears, and it has several wolf packs. Uh, and I, when I first got to Yellowstone, I thought it was going to be like jell Jellystone, sort of clownish or, or cartoonish, I guess. Uh, but when I and it, it, it is a circus, you know, along the main roads. But I found that as soon as you get off the main road and go up the little tributary creeks and follow a trail up, you get half a mile from the parking lot, and there is nobody. I mean, nobody likes to walk more than a hundred feet, apparently. <laughs> And I'd go f up these trails for you know a couple miles, and I'd fish all day with just like a bison, uh, you know, grazing right next to me. There's some big old bull who's survived you know years and years of weather and attacks, and and maybe there'd be a grizzly bear at the edge of the woods grubbing. And uh, I just I loved it. And so when I write the way I do, you know, eventually it seems like this place was going to have to inform one of the books. And how you've just described your own experience at Yellowstone is so uh, reminiscent of Ren Hopper, who is a titular Last Ranger of the book. And right in chapter one, we are introduced to the fact that he is filled with rage about the people who were in Yellowstone. And he muses, the more time I spend here, the more he wishes people would just go away and leave <laughs> the wildlife alone. But that sounds like what you're saying. You have this certain part of the park within a half a mile of maybe parking lots, that's where the people are, but go beyond that, you can experience that level of wildlife. Yeah, you can, and um, the one trail that I'm, and I wouldn't name it, but the place that I love to go to most, uh, I kept running into Edgar, and Edgar was a little black bear who just used the trail like his highway, you know? I mean, it was the easiest way from one place to the next. And um, these videos kept circulating that I, people would show me that were going viral of Edgar getting um, pepper sprayed by people because, and you'd hear, you know, you'd, you'd see the camera start to, sh you know, the phone start to shake and you'd hear someone say, oh, oh, he's coming, it's a bear, he's coming, and then you'd see the can come out and this, and then Edgar would like shy 
And, he, and you could tell he, it really hurt his feelings. I mean, he looked like his feelings were hurt. And he'd like, go away. Like, why are you guys being so mean to me? I'm just using the trail. But I love being in a place where that could happen and where you might, early in the morning, if you got up early enough and went out in the dark, you might hear a wolf singing. And you might climb a little hill where there's some really dedicated uh, naturalists setting up their spotting scopes and just at first light they might let you look through one of the scopes and you might see wolves at the edge of the trees watching a herd of elk and then it's like the wildness just prickles over your skin it's like a feeling that I, I had never experienced before and I just loved it and I also love being in a place where you're not at the top of the food chain I mean wolves have never attacked a person and yell ever but bears have, and um, you know it's fun to fish and not and, and not want to get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you write you write very beautifully about the wildlife in Yellowstone, and I think it's amazing. And I think one of the major characters is studying the wolves, and the wolves really play a major part. And the reintroduction of wolves has really changed that landscape. Has changed what Yellowstone is now compared to what it was before the wolves came. And Maybe you can talk about how does that fit into the novel, and what do you think about that? Yeah, the Trophic Cascade thing. Uh, so my enforcement ranger, Ren, he's my sort of protagonist. He lives in a little cluster of cabins in the middle of the Lamar Valley. It's a shallow river that runs through meadows. It's hemmed in on either side by steep ridges of black timber and rim rock, and it's just beautiful, and there's these herds of animals. And uh, he lives in a cluster of cabins. It's called Buffalo Ranch or the Lamar Ranger Station. And it's where they first reintroduced the wolves in the mid-90s in 95. It's, you can, the pens are still there where they brought the few wolves to acclimate to, the, to their new surroundings before they let them go. And Hilly is his nearest and only neighbor. She lives in a cabin just up the hill. And she is a famous wolf biologist. Uh, she's been on Nova, you know, History Channel, National. She advocates for the wolves, but she really likes wolves better than people. But she likes Wren. And so if he's up early enough on his porch with a cup of coffee, uh, she'll stop by and they'll share uh, coffee together. And you know, you guys know how much I love porches and coffee. <laughs> I, could just, I could have written the whole book about that, you know, with a good view. But long and short of it is that at one point she tells Wren, because he doesn't really understand the importance of the reintroduction, he thinks wolves are, are charismatic, they bring in tourists, and they look great on a t-shirt. Uh, but she explains to Wren, she says, hey, Renito, let's get this straight. I know you're just a cop. But, uh, and she tells him what happens when you reintroduce an apex predator to an environment that has been ravaged by um, overpopulation of grazers like elk and deer. So what happens is the wolves come in, and this happened in Yellowstone. They cut down the elk herds. Then the willows that were overgrazed along the banks of the rivers that had, you know, these willows had held the banks together and allowed for the sinuous structure of the rivers. Those had been grazed down, eaten away, and the rivers had cut their banks and now no longer had the, the nice gravel bars, the nice bends that hosted uh, fish and beaver. And, and so when you cut down that overgrazing, all of a sudden the willows come back, the banks are restored, the rivers get again their sinuous nature, gravel bars, insects, fish come back, all the birds that feed on fish come back. 
Uh, beavers come in, they back up water with their dams, then you have perfect habitat for moose, the moose come back. This creates microclimates, groves of aspen come up where they've been over, the saplings were overgrazed. Now you have a moister microclimate, uh, it, uh, so it even changes the weather, and now you have a healthy ecosystem again. It's remarkable. It is amazing. I was wondering, you know, you write so wonderfully about this stuff. I was wondering if you could read a passage for us about the wolves and about you know some of these things we're talking about I happen to have it right here look at that um, Hilly's truck was not in the turnaround sometimes she stayed out late to observe nocturnal hunting behaviors and didn't get in till the middle of the night he dropped his pack on the porch and pulled out his wet gear he hung his waders from a nail on a porch post and left his fishing boots on the top step he had his hand on the screen door when he heard it, very faint. He held his breath and turned an ear and listened. Far off but clear, the strain of a single wolf. Two barks testing the night, almost like a tuning, the confirming plucks of a string, and then a rising resonant howl that froze the stars in place and dropped and hollowed like a woodwind and crescendoed again. The night went taut like a drumskin, as if the solitary wolf had willed all of creation into a sounding board or bout for his song. That's what it was, music. It rooted Wren to the floorboards. The cry climbed and thinned and wavered. It held desolation and yearning and joy all together. Somehow. The hairs on the back of Wren's neck stood up. He wondered if it did the same for the others in the pack, raised their hackles, but not in anger, in ferocious love, because as another wolf lifted her voice in answer, she was much closer somewhere at the base of Druid Peak. And as another and another loosed a pitched cry from across the valley, that's the way it sounded, like the most desolate, life-affirming love. That's Peter Heller reading from The Last Ranger. And Peter is here in front of a crowd, as you've just heard, at the Boulder Bookstore. And wolves are central to the book. Right now, the big part of Colorado politics after Colorado voters, mostly voters on the front range, approved a measure to reintroduce wolves. And that is supposed to happen by the end of this year. There have been community meetings happening all over the state in the, in the build-up to this, and it's been interesting to hear the different attitudes to wolves. And you explore some of the, the various different attitudes to wolves in here. There's this idea that they are central to an ecosystem being healthy, and you explain that. There's also this also mythical idea that we have about wolves, their role in the West, but then there's very much an idea that people see them as pests ranchers see them as destructive and you kind of explore all of that in the book and I know in your acknowledgments you acknowledge many many biologists and wolf experts that you, you spoke to so what were some of those nuances that you explore in the book that you heard when you were researching attitudes to wolves? Huh, it's, a, it's such a tough issue I mean you know ranchers um, so Montana uh, in 2021 uh, they voted, the legislature voted to uh, mandate uh, the, a decrease of the wolf population in Montana. And they had very strict quotas on the counties, or the hunting units bordering 
uh, Yellowstone, um, and they lifted those restrictions. And in one year, Yellowstone lost, they estimated there were maybe 140 wolves in the park, and it, it, it went down to 89. In one year, it devastated the packs in Yellowstone. And these are, these are, these are packs that had taken decades and decades to restore and build up. Um, thank goodness now they think there's about 108 or 109 wolves again. And the, the Junction Butte pack, which is the one I write about in the Lamar Valley, um, lost a bunch and um, they're back up to full strength again. So we're you know, really relieved that they seem so resilient. Um, one of the issues that you know, Montana faced when they you know, voted for this was ranchers feel, uh, fearing um, predation by wolves. And it turns out that in uh, 2020, I think it was, there was one documented case of uh, livestock predation by a wolf pack. So it exists, uh, but maybe not enough to justify the wholesale wiping out of a species. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting thing. I think it's really mostly about education. I think once people get educated, I met a rancher. I went to um, observe wolves up in Hudson Bay. There's a pack up there, uh, or several packs that nobody knows. Nobody knows about them. Nobody knows what they are. They don't know if they're gray wolves, timber wolves, uh, cloud wolves. They're almost twice as big as Yellowstone wolves, and they predate polar bears, cubs, and old ones. But you know, they're big wolves, and they're super territorial. I think wolves are, yeah, I, I do, I feel like they are uh, mythic. I think it's really necessary to have apex predators. It's been shown again and again that it keeps ecosystems healthy, both aquatic, marine ecosystems, and terrestrial ecosystems. And so I met an, a rancher up there in Hudson Bay who uh, was on one of these um, citizen science wolf projects. And he is in Montana educating his neighbors on how to keep his livestock safer and how to live with the wolves. And they are catching on. They don't want to spend a lot of energy, you know, killing wolves. They got better stuff to do, like watching Yellowstone. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a complex issue. I don't know a ton about it. I really don't. I'm not an expert, but I, but I have talked to a lot of people, and I, I think education is happening. In the, in the book... And in, and in life, I think, the wolves are also kind of a symbol for what people want from the West. You know, in the, in pe do people want Yellowstone that's wild and protected and has wolves and has all this great wildlife? Or is this an encroachment of the federal government on private land? You know, which, a land that could be private or should be private. Or, and so you address a lot of those in, the, in the, those issues in this book as well as just the wolves. It goes beyond the wolves, yeah. these conflicts that Wren finds himself dealing with as, a, as the ranger. Yeah, well, Cook, so a lot, some of it takes place in Cook City, which is a tiny little town. It's like the main street is the highway, and it's, you know, a couple, it's a couple hundred yards long. There's a couple of gas stations, a couple of gift stores, a couple of restaurants. That's it, a hotel. And... Um, you know, that's where, you know, I would go for dinner at night when I was camping in a lot of times in Lamar Valley because it was only 20 minutes up the road. And uh, I love Cook City. I really do. And I, I really love the people that I met there. And they're so exhausted by tourism. I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people come through this tiny little town uh, from away. And they're, you know, these, these guys work, you know, can't see to can't see. Uh, all season, you know, they can work 18 hours a day just um, catering to tourists and they're exhausted and 
There are trophy elk just over the border, and these people are, you know, elk hunters. And uh, a little a little hunting season would be kind of awesome in Yellowstone, and maybe a little uh, logging would be good. Uh, maybe a little mining would be all right. I get it. I mean, you know, it's like there's this sort of like fenced-in kind of Shangri-La where, you know, the lion basically lies down with the lamb and, and they see it as, you know, rich people who could afford to come for vacation come. I understand the resentments. And so, you know, I don't treat the people in the book, you know, like like bad people that feel that way. I mean, they, they have a voice in the book. Um, doesn't happen to be my opinion, but I get it. And so Ran as a ranger has to deal with all those kinds of conflicts. I think it's really interesting. Do you think there's sometimes a tendency, especially when we write about so-called stewards of the land or the environmentalists, that they get put on these sort of pedestals and, and the nuance of maybe their motives aren't you know, as pure? Because you explore that even with some of the biologists as well, like Hilly. Um, there's nuance there. There sometimes seems to be a tendency when we are talking about the folks who are stewarding the land and, and the conservationists that they're they're the good ones. And we don't often see some of that nuance that you bring. Yeah, and I think without, I mean, our country's so polarized, right? Without some sort of like neutral ground where we can all talk to each other, how are we ever gonna get anything done? You know, you got, you got, I mean, people have strong feelings for a reason, you know? It's not, it's not because, you know, somebody, some crazy, um, well, orange, face guys telling them <laughs> what to think. <laughs> I don't know. It's fun. I just love writing about, you know, all sorts of people. And I just, you know, it's a gas. And I never know who's going to show up. And uh, the people in this book, there's so many sort of, um, you know, kind of very crazy characters in this book. It was really, really fun to write about. Well, you know, Ren, who's, who's the, the ranger, an enforcement ranger, so he kind of is the law, but even Ren has kind of this ambiguous relationship with the law. We, we see several instances in the book, it's not once, it's not even twice, where Ren decides, you know, if this played out the way it should, that's not really going to be good for anybody. So why don't, when the other people get here, why don't you say this, and you say this, and he's kind of orchestrating a more just ending. So. Right. Ren's relationship to his job, to the idea that he's the enforcement, but he he knows better in some ways. Right. I, you know, what, what, how did that come about? And it, it rings very true, but can somebody really operate like that, you know? Yeah, I think so. I, I have good friends that are cops. <laughs> <laughs> no names. <laughs> but I think if something can be solved in a humane way, you know, without... Uh, you know, going to court, what a, what a cool thing, right? Yeah. Now, Ren is a humanitarian. He hates people, but he loves them, too. Uh, he's, so he's a little like me. <laughs> I spent, I remember I spent, you know, a couple months with Paul Watson on that Sea Shepherd campaign in Antarctica on the all-black pirate ship. And that guy, I mean, he would say stuff like, the life of a worm is worth more than the life of a human being. And I would say, why? I mean, he was so, he was so inflammatory. And I'd say, why? We, you know, we'd be going through 30-foot seas in this all-black pirate ship with a Jolly Roger and like a, a blade on the bow to gut the Japanese whaling ships. <laughs> and, and, and I would say, why? And he'd say, because a worm doesn't, you know, 
destroy, you know, thousands and thousands of other species in its life. And, you know, I thought the guy had a point. Uh, so he really, he, he really hated people, but at the same time, you couldn't find a more gregarious guy who would lend you five, you know, Australian dollars to play, you know, you know, poker with, <laughs> just so you could join the game. I mean, he he actually really loved people. So, I think you know, I think the I think these types are very complicated, and um, I'm a little like Paul Watson. I mean, in in some ways, you know, if I could push a button, and I'm going to say this on the radio, uh, if I could push a button and all humanity would just vanish painlessly, I might actually push it just to give everybody else every, you know, all the other species of friggin' chance, because we're really screwing it up. We really are. And I think it's, I think it's a sin. At the same time, uh, it's so fun to be here. You guys are awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of love people at the same time. So we can hold both, I think. Uh, and I think Ren does, and I think Hilly especially does that way. She may not love people. <laughs> she may not want to play poker with them, but uh, Ren does. Well, you established pretty early on Ren's attitude towards the people in the park. You would prefer if they all went away. And there are several scenarios that you explore and that you write about. It's like the Darwin Awards, absolutely ridiculous human-wildlife interactions. Right. And I think Ren says something like, how many lives have been lost for that Instagram moment, that selfie? And it was in the news this week, some poor kid fell down into the Grand Canyon because yeah. someone was taking a photo and he was trying to get out of the way. Every year, it seems, there are yeah. these ridiculous stories that come out about people trying to bring home a bison calf in their car and yeah. various different things. How much fun did you have and how angry did you get when you were coming up with these different scenarios of just how dumb people can be around wildlife? You know what? I didn't have to make them up. I mean, you know, I mean, I did spend weeks in Yellowstone. I saw the dumbest stuff. I really did. Um, you know, that moose, there's a moose scene with a, kid, a family, you know, urging their little daughter to present an apple to a baby moose. I saw that. I mean, that's like, that's like, I don't know, social services come right in. Uh, take that kid to someplace smarter, you know, a household that's a little more intelligent. I don't know. I mean, I saw lots of dumb stuff. And then it's fun to imagine them, you know. Yeah, Yellowstone's interesting. I mean, uh, you get on the main road, and if there's a marmot or a porcupine crossing the road, you know there's going to be a traffic jam for an hour. And it's sort of fun that way, you know. I mean, everybody's out of their cars. They're all excited. If there's a bison herd, forget about it. You know, you might as well listen to your book on tape or, you know, go for a walk. I love that people get so excited about nature because most people just don't have much exposure to the natural world anymore, and it's sad. And I, so, so at the same time as I think it's a circus, I get really excited seeing how enthusiastic people are about a vole. <laughs> well, one of the things that's said in the book about people, but also animals, everybody in this crazy world of ours is nobody thrives on their own. Like every creature, every person needs somebody else. And through the course of the book, we didn't really get into Ren's background, but he's got this job after you know, a difficult time in his life, almost to be alone. But he's coming to realize throughout the book that even he can't thrive on his own. Right, yeah. No, Ren does need human connection. And um, one of his best friends is Tenor the janitor. Who, uh, he's the maintenance guy who takes care of the pit toilets and stuff. And uh, he reminds Ren of Santa Claus. 
because he's got a big belly and a twinkling eyes and little granny glasses. And um, he's like the happiest man on earth because uh, as long as he gets his restrooms clean, he can go fishing. And uh, um, so Ren sees him every day and it gives him that kind of, he sees Hilly and he sees Tenor and that kind of grounds him and gives him, you know, and that, you know, this is aside from all the, uh, you know, the visitors, which are a whole nother deal. But he, you know, he has good friends that really ground him and it was really fun writing those relationships. Tenor's a hoot. I mean, uh, Tenor told his wife, Sandra, who runs a bar in Cook City, that he would never, ever buy a can of Copenhagen again. And so he depends on Ren coming by in the morning on the way to fishing to give him a big dip. <laughs> so anyway, it's really fun to write those characters. And you know, the way I write, I don't, I don't design the characters. I don't engineer them. I don't plot. And so when they show up, I'm always just so glad to see them, especially if there's somebody like Tenor who's so generous-spirited and funny. Well, there's a whole host of characters in here. And always, as always with the Peter Heller book, page-turning plot that keeps you turning that page, as well as the most incredible lyrical descriptions of fishing and just nature in general. And so I know we've talked about this in, in previous books. You're so iconic when, you, as a Western writer, okay, we, we are very proud to have you as a Colorado writer, but you, you write about the West, you write about nature. What are the ongoing challenges with that as we're seeing ongoing destruction, the climate crisis, more and more nature and wild areas being lost to various different things? How does that change you as a writer and your writing process? It's very hard to be an artist right now because what's happening in the world, you know, um, is very, very painful if you're aware at all. And it's sometimes I feel like, you know, I I'm playing the violin on the deck of the Titanic. And who am I playing to? You know, the tsunami of climate change is coming, of habitat loss. And uh, it's so sad, it's so heartbreaking that, uh, you know, coral reefs are dying, that, you know, tens and tens of thousands, probably a million species depend on these reefs and they're really going away. How do we deal with that as human beings, you know, uh, as moral? Uh, beings. Um, it's very tough and sometimes I think I should just quit writing fiction um, and just dedicate myself to you know doing a startup that will help people uh, log in their environmental contributions in their neighborhood in their city in their in their country and um, I think that's a cool idea and help people you know get community that way and, and feel like incremental changes are making a difference and then I think, Dang it, you know, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I don't want to spend five years doing a startup and coming to Boulder and finding venture capitalists, you know. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's really tough. Like, what do we do? And uh, so uh, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, we do what only we can do, like she said. And, you know, like I tell stories. I love it. That's where I get into flow. And then at the rest of my day, be as responsible as I can. And, uh, and hope, you know, I think that these issues are inevitably inform the fiction. And, you know, I tell myself that maybe that might make some difference. Maybe it might prompt some people to get, at, get to Yellowstone, to, to get out into the mountains, to um, become aware of these other species as, uh, as important citizens of the planet as we are. I mean, I think that's, that's the education. It's like, hey, 
All these other species have a vote. They have just as much of a right to be here. We've all evolved for over billions of years to this point. Let's respect each other. If I, you know, if I can engender that in the fiction, well, well, good. I'll keep, I'll keep fiddling. Well said. I, you know, I think I'm biased this way because I spent my life in the bookstore selling books. But I believe that that narrative has such power, and you do such wonderful things and have so much force behind your storytelling that so much good can come from that. And who, who is able to set the narrative or control the narrative can make a big change in this world. And I think you're one of the people. And so definitely don't want you doing a startup. Me <laughs> <laughs> neither. That button that you're fantasizing about either. The painless destruction. You know, I asked Marilyn Robinson about that. We were talking, because she was my teacher at Iowa, and I said, would you push the button? She goes, no, because nobody would monitor the nuclear plants and they would melt down. I thought that was very pragmatic. Well, we're going to say goodbye to our radio audience right now, but we are going to be continuing in the podcast, so please make sure you're subscribed to the Book Club podcast. We're going to have questions from the very large audience that's here at the Book Club, but... We'll give a round of applause to Peter Heller, his latest book, The Last Ranger. Thank you. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Guys. Thank you and as we always do at the end of the radio episode, we announce what we're reading for the next month. So for September, Arson, who are we reading? We're reading Ramona Osabel, who has a novel, The Last Animal. This is about a few people who stumble upon a perfectly preserved baby mammoth and what they might be able to do with that, that perfectly preserved baby mammoth. So we're entering nature again and maybe what the future might hold. And another great Colorado author. You can catch that on the fourth Thursday of September at 9am on KGNU. But subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. For the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve. <laughs>